Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting, abandoned, and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. Welcome back from Abandoned Carousel's much longer than anticipated hiatus. If you've been wondering where the Abandoned Carousel has been, I took a bit of a hiatus during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's taken a lot longer than anticipated to deal with family as well as research and record episodes. But I'm back and it'll just take me a little bit longer in between things. I hope you're all doing well. As the world is having sort of this confrontation about people's inner biases in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests, I thought I would take this opportunity to reshape the episode that I was going to do. It's originally going to be about Euclid Beach Park and the enduring rides from Euclid Beach Park that went from theme park to theme park to theme park. Three different theme parks for the same core group of rides. I thought that was really interesting. But as I was researching, I couldn't get past the reason for Euclid Beach Park's closure originally. So instead of talking to you about these fun theme park rides... What I'm going to talk with you about is some reading that I've been doing to educate myself. And what we're going to talk about today is what I've learned, which is that racism is actually responsible for quite a few of the urban theme park closures in the 1960s and 1970s. My episode today is going to draw heavily from this book called Racism, Riots, and Roller Coasters, which was written by Victoria Walcott. And you can actually read this book for free through Johns Hopkins University, and I'll include a link in the show notes. I'm still learning, and that's okay. And I'm probably going to make some mistakes, and that's okay too. But I'd like to bring you with me and tell you a little bit about what I've found out. In the past on this show, I'm sure I've mentioned how it's sort of weird that a bunch of theme parks seem to close in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, the unspoken reason was racism. I'm going to talk about one particular park, Euclid Beach Park, but this is really something that was responsible for closures of many urban theme parks. We begin towards the beginning. Early amusement parks at the turn of the century were often trumpeted by their owners as being spaces for cleanliness and order. But they accomplished this by putting in place the exclusion of blacks. It is perhaps a thesis-level work to try and condense this topic into any sort of bite-sized format, but we do need to have a few landmarks on the topic. You may or may not remember some of these cases from your U.S. history class, but here's a few points for you. America was built on racialized slavery from the very beginning. 
For more than you learned in school and less than you should know, please listen to or read the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project. Slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment just after the Civil War in 1865. Now, this was only 155 years ago. To really place this in context for the podcast, Charles Luff's first carousel was built only 11 years afterwards, in 1876, and his contemporary Charles Dare built a carousel around the same time that is still operational today. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 was a federal law that called for equal rights for all people, particularly regarding access to accommodations, transportation, and theaters, regardless of race. A group of Supreme Court cases collectively called the Civil Rights Cases of 1883 dismantled that previous 1875 act, ruling that Congress could not outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals. As a result, southern states began or continued passing laws that we now call Jim Crow laws, which codified racial discrimination in public amenities. 1896 saw a landmark Supreme Court case which legally established the principle of separate but equal. This was Plessy v. Ferguson. This applied to all public facilities. As a result, individual states had to pass their own civil rights laws to ban this racial discrimination in public amusements and amenities. But in the South, and as we find out in the North as well, Jim Crow laws remained in place. It took until 1954 for education to be desegregated, and this was Brown versus Board of Education. And of course, 1964 and 1965 saw the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which broadly outlawed discrimination based on color, religion, sex, or national origin. Despite this, today in 2020, we still see that racial discrimination is rampant in hiring practices, housing, health care, and police brutality, among every other aspect of life. Given this context, let's focus on one urban amusement park in particular as we move to look at how racial discrimination affected urban amusements over the last century. The park that I'm going to frame this discussion about, as I mentioned, is called Euclid Beach Park. Euclid Beach Park was located on the shores of Lake Erie in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Euclid Beach Park opened its doors for the first time in 1895. A group of businessmen wanted to capitalize on the booming popularity of Coney Island, so they purchased land outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and opened an amusement park. In the late 1800s, amusement parks and carnival midways were often seen as hotbeds of sin and salaciousness, crime and immorality. The sexes were allowed to freely intermingle to experience freedom from crowded housing conditions in the devastating summer heat, and they were a place for the working class to experience leisure activities for the first time. For black people, it appears that Cleveland was a good place to be socially and economically for most of the 19th century. By this, of course, the subtext is... It was better in Cleveland than in most places, but probably not as good as it should have been. 
Cleveland was a center for abolitionism prior to the Civil War, and local black leaders in the community actually fought for integration rather than segregated separate black institutions. To really put a pin in it, as I said earlier, slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment just after the Civil War in 1865. This was only 155 years ago, and as I said, there are carousels that are contemporaneous to the abolition of slavery that still operate today in 2020. As I mentioned, on the surface of glossy history textbooks, things seem to go swimmingly. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 was a federal law calling for equal rights for all people, particularly in access to accommodations, transportation, and theaters. We, of course, all know the undercurrents yet to come. In its initial years of operation, managers William R. Ryan and Lee Holtzman modeled Euclid Beach after the best in the business at the time. The beach was obviously a large draw, along with other typical period amusements vaudeville, sideshows, concerts, gambling, beer. High walls surrounded the property, blocking views of the rowdiness, and an entrance fee was charged to even enter. There even were some rides way back then, one of Lamarcus A. Thompson's groundbreaking switchback railways. TLDR, he's called the father of the American roller coaster, and Euclid Beach Park's switchback railway was the sixth of his design ever built. Unfortunately, despite the draws of the opposite sex, pleasures, and beer, the park did not do well in those early years. It was seen as a skeevy, sleazy place to be. And the city, formerly seen as well-integrated for most of the 19th century, had become more segregated as the century came to a close. As I mentioned, the civil rights cases of 1883, which ruled that Congress could not outlaw against discrimination by private individuals, and the 1896 Supreme Court Plessy v. Ferguson, meant that separate but equal was legal. It was heralded from the highest court in the land. This applied to all facilities open to the public, including Euclid Beach Park. And it meant individual businesses could and did choose to exercise racial discrimination. It's said that the earliest discrimination suits at Euclid Beach Park can be traced back to around this time. By late 1899, Euclid Beach Park had been open for a handful of years, but was reported in the newspapers as a failure. It was said to be losing over $20,000 a season, which is over half a million dollars a season in 2020 money. Investors were facing the loss of over half of their investment funds if they sold the land for development, but they saw no other choice. In 1901, they put the land up for sale. Now, before we get back there, in 1896, a year after Euclid Beach Park opened, a man named Dudley S. Humphrey II opened a popcorn stand at Euclid Beach Park. Humphrey had built a name and a living for himself, having been popping popcorn in the greater Cleveland area since 1891. He patented a type of popcorn popper which seasoned the popcorn as it was popped. And yes, that sentence was quite the tongue twister for me. For three years, Humphrey and his family operated a stand at Euclid Beach Park, popping corn amidst the drunkenness and debauchery of the early park. In 1899, however, he closed his stand, unhappy with the atmosphere and the park management. However, in 1901, when the park went up for sale, Humphrey saw a business opportunity, and he and six other members of his family got the funds together and purchased the park. They had in mind a new direction. 
Immediately, changes were made at Euclid Beach Park. Gone were the high walls. Gone was the admissions fee. Money was instead charged at each attraction. The goal was anyone who wanted to visit the park could do so free of charge. And gone, too, was the rowdy behavior. Humphrey wanted a family-friendly park and a family-friendly atmosphere. Gone was the beer garden, and patrons were strictly prohibited from entering the park if they had consumed any alcohol. Bathing garments at the beach had to be modest and, quote, definitely not gaudy in color, end quote. This type of attitude was a contrast to the majority of the amusement parks at the time, which were known for being rowdy, raucous places. But it did mark sort of the um, sea change for amusement parks at the time. And it was a strategy that worked well for Humphrey. The slogan was, quote, one fare, free gate, and no beer, end quote. The average person only needed to pay a single streetcar fare to get to the park. It was a place that was suddenly very accessible to youths of all colors. Unfortunately, the park's long history of banning black admittance on certain days or on certain attractions is said to have begun around this time. And this was done in direct violation of the standing 1894 Ohio State law barring discrimination in public facilities. The quote from the park's leadership was that everything at Euclid Beach Park should be, quote, of a highly moral and elevating character, end quote. And as many sources describe, advertising for the park at one time included promises that Euclid Beach Park would, quote, present nothing that would demoralize or depress, end quote, and stated that visitors would, quote, never be exposed to undesirable people, end quote. Saying the quiet part out loud, it seems that the management, in a not uncommon opinion at the time, wanted to keep black people out. Commercial recreation, including things like theme parks, swimming pools, etc., which we can distinguish from non-commercial recreation such as public parks and picnic grounds, arose at the same time as the Jim Crow laws, which codified racial discrimination in public places both before and after the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case. While the South saw whites-only signs and policies quickly enacted, the northern states, which we would consider Ohio to be, were slower to enact any sweeping measure prior to World War II. However, there was little public taste for quote-unquote mixing in the shiny new arena of a theme park. A man named Forrester B. Washington, a black social worker and activist, is quoted as saying that the young black migrants to the area, quote, found the wholesome agencies of recreation either closed or closing to him, end quote. Between northern states and southern states, the difference was one of degree. While a southern swimming pool might be officially whites only, a swimming pool in the north might have blacks allowed only on a single day, with a more subtle members-only policy the rest of the time. Theme parks did the same thing. Wolcott's book lists the policies off. Lakewood Park and Adora Park allowed blacks only in at the beginning or end of the season, once a year. Boblo Island in Detroit allowed blacks every other week. And by 1915, Euclid Beach Park followed suit, as did its local competition, Luna Park. Black people were admitted only on certain days of the week, 
and they were strictly prohibited from interacting with white people while they were at the park. On the other days, the park's private police force ensured that no black person was admitted. And more to the point, it's noted in Wolcott's book that once admitted to the park, a black patron was not allowed to enter the restaurants, the bathhouse, the dance hall, or the roller rink except in very rare circumstances. Again, it was all about keeping the family-friendly image of the time. Popular culture had wrongly painted blacks as harbingers of disease and violence. And so, in the eyes of management, the park was perfectly justified in admitting only people who would uphold that quote-unquote high moral character. Again, this is not unique to Euclid Beach Park. This was a common tactic for many theme parks in the early 20th century. Racial discrimination was their way of establishing their business as a safe space. It's kind of a twisted marketing tactic. Over in nearby Cincinnati's Coney Island, not New York's Coney Island, Cincinnati's Coney Island, and in Youngstown's Adora Park, similar policies were in place. Black people were admitted on very few days, and private park police were used to eject anyone that management deemed inappropriate. And even on the days that Adora Park was open to blacks, days when the popular Homestead Grays Negro League baseball team played, many of the park's more popular attractions were inexplicably closed or under repairs. Justice John Marshall Harlan wrote The Lone Descent in the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case, which is apparently quite often quoted. In his opinion, segregation could, quote, have no other result than to render permanent peace impossible and to keep alive a conflict of races, the continuance of which must do harm to all concerned, end quote. Harlan's view was that segregation caused violence, not that violence required segregation. And again and again throughout history, we have seen the truth of his opinion borne out. In the arena of public amusements, this violence was most often seen at the swimming pool. With women and children present, the specter of not only males and females gathered in less clothing than usual— but also the specter of interracial relations, miscegenation. It was seen as taboo and often illegal. With emotions of one sort already high, it's unsurprising that emotions of another sort also exploded. It wasn't until Loving Day, June 12, 1967, that anti-miscegenation laws were stricken down. That's not that long ago. The early 20th century is littered with violence and murder tied to racial discrimination at swimming pools and beaches. Spontaneous protests regularly arose in small groups, given the increasing segregation of public recreation. Public policy, especially in large urban cities like Chicago, was that racial segregation, separate but equal, would lead to racial peace. However, this was not the case. From minor antagonism like angry words to unsafe recreation conditions to actual bloodshed, violence, and death, there was no peace. Back at Euclid Beach Park, similar policies were still in effect. The park banned black school children from using the dance hall in the 1930s. After pushing from the NAACP, the Cleveland School Board resolved that no schools would visit the park until all children were, quote, 
accorded the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, end quote. The Humphrey family group was still in charge and set up a legal fund for this and other expected legal battles to come. But it was the private police force and the constant threats of violence that were wielded most commonly against black patrons whose only crime was to attempt to enjoy the recreations. And here we'll take a quick diversion for what wonderful recreations they were. As I said, my original discussion about Euclid Beach Park before I learned more about it was going to be about its enduring rides, a group of which passed from Euclid Beach Park to Shady Lakes Park to Old Indiana Theme Park over the course of several decades. There were some really fantastic rides. There were groundbreaking coasters like 1913's Derby Racer, a John Miller-designed Mobius-style coaster which gave the effect of cars racing one another when multiple trains ran on the track. 1924's Thriller Coaster, at the time the tallest and fastest coaster in the world, designed by Philadelphia Toboggan Company and Herbert Paul Schmeck. And if you're a longtime The Abandoned Carousel listener or reader, you might remember him as the designer of Joyland's iconic roller coaster, as well as Little America's classic Meteor Coaster. And 1930 saw a unique coaster called The Flying Turns, a trackless coaster, more like a wooden bobsled course than a traditional coaster, designed in partnership between yet again John Miller and British World War I ace John Norman Bartlett, Euclid Beach Park's Flying Turns was the second of this ride type ever built and the tallest. Two-person sleds designed to look like airplanes were chained together in three-car trains, winched up to the top of the coaster, and then let go, almost like a waterless water slide. There are some videos of this ride on YouTube, and it actually looks quite fun. And in fact, the flying turns made it into a Beach Boys song. Euclid Beach Park is one out of five parks mentioned in Amusement Parks USA by the Beach Boys. Quote, at Euclid Beach on the flying turns, I bet you can't keep her smiling, says the lyrics. And of course, given the name of the podcast, you know I can't forget the carousels. 1904 saw the installation of Philadelphia Toboggan Company number nine. This carousel was supposedly a work of art, a three-row menagerie with a magnificent lion, dancing horses, a giraffe with a snake draped around its neck, and my favorite, a very proud golden retriever. In 1909, the original Philadelphia Toboggan Company Carousel No. 9 was sold to Laurel Springs Amusement Park in Hartford, Connecticut, and the next year, 1910, PTC installed a new carousel at Euclid Beach Park, PTC No. 19 a 58-horse carousel with two chariots. The horses were replicas of famous horses ridden by characters such as Sitting Bull and Lady Godiva, and along with the carousel came a beautiful band organ, all to the tune of about $7,000. And, of course, beyond this, there were dozens of other popular rides and attractions, things like the Rocket Ship, Designed and built by the park's welder, apparently, this classic swinging car ride was built with futuristic Buck Rogers-style lines. Riders boarded the car at the platform and were swung high enough to touch the trees when the ride was at its peak. The shiny silver steel cars were some of the park's most memorable, and they even made a little kitty version at one point. So, funnily enough, when you research the park... 
This ride is a source of a lot of speculation and urban legend, because rumors say that one car broke off of its cables and landed all the way in Lake Erie. Um, This is not physically possible and did not happen, but of course rumors persist. The other common thing that you see when you Google the park is the iconic arched entryway of Euclid Beach Park, and this was built in 1921. With stone pillars on either side of the roadway, beautifully styled letters spell out Euclid Beach Park, and it just entices patrons in. But only the right kind of patrons, of course. As discussed, recreation riots were a huge part of the early 20th century, and this constant activism began to pay dividends by the 1930s. Of course, also in effect was the Great Depression. With nothing but time on their hands, there was plenty of additional time for leisure and protesting. In a time before our modern era of July 2020, this fact was probably counterintuitive. Now, I think it is probably quite clear to everyone listening to this how even in lean financial times, a lack of work means that you can spend your time on recreation and leisure activities. During this era, then, government-sanctioned segregation, including New Deal-era segregated housing and hundreds of segregated swimming pools, led to a rising tide of anger. Black youth continued to protest racist policies at their local swimming pools across the United States. And white people, in turn, fought the rightful access of black people to recreational spaces, among others, at every turn. Quote-unquote mild violence, including hateful words and harmful pranks, all the way up to life-threatening violence, including rocks, fists, and more, were what faced black people trying to access the theme park or swimming pool in their neighborhoods, in many cases paid for by their very own taxpayer dollars. Demanding access to recreation was seen as central to an assertion of citizenship and consumer rights. In the 1940s, race relations was increasingly a hot topic in a way it hadn't been since the immediate post-Civil War Reconstruction era. Before and after the World War, discrimination in housing and employment were huge areas of focus, and so was recreation. Recreation segregation was a huge focus if only because it was so visible, whereas discrimination in jobs and housing could be hidden away. Activists began to focus on nonviolent protests in recreational spaces. A 1944 book of essays by Roy Wilkins entitled, quote, What the Negro Wants, end quote, laid it out, stating that what blacks wanted was, quote, to be able to go to parks, playgrounds, beaches, pools, theaters, restaurants, hotels, taverns, tourist camps, and other places of public amusement and accommodation without proscription and insult, end quote. It seems perfectly reasonable, but we're obviously still fighting this fight here in 2020, so what can we say? In the 1940s, organized, quote, nonviolent direct action, end quote, was the innovation. And this was defined as, quote, group action against injustice by challenging directly the right of that discrimination to exist, end quote. And this was posed in contrast to the reliance of the states or the courts, which were clearly not working out for people the way that they were supposed to. And there were two movements that really came out of this. There was A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement, 
which then itself led to the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. CORE's first use of the nonviolent direct action came in response to an Illinois skating rink in 1946 that used a fictitious club to keep blacks out and to circumvent the Illinois civil rights laws. Physical pickets blocked and slowed access to the club, and picketers touted their military veteran status, with signs reading, quote, the draft boards did not exclude Negroes, end quote. Larger crowds joined the picket each weekend, and from January to March, the aptly named White City Skating Rink lost 50% of their business. Ultimately, White City was forced to begin allowing blacks entrance to the skating rink, or else they would go out of business entirely. A local paper wrote, quote, the fight against White City is considered to be the opening gun in a campaign to smash discrimination in all skating rinks and amusement centers in Chicago, end quote. The fight for equality was then taken to further north, to other civil rights states. And these were called that because there were discrimination statutes on the books, but they were not enforced. Ohio was one of these states, and the place most heavily targeted by activists at the time was Euclid Beach Park. The other thing that you'll read about a lot if you read about Euclid Beach Park is the so-called Euclid Beach Park riots. By this time, Euclid Beach Park was solidly established as a popular, family-friendly amusement park with many exciting rides, roller coasters, shows, and of course, the beach. But as I discussed earlier, all of these features and amenities were still only open to white visitors. Black visitors could visit only on designated days, and they were kept under a tight, watchful eye from the park's private police force. In 1946, a young woman named Juanita Moreau established a new chapter of CORE. She began spearheading nonviolent protests to challenge Euclid Beach Park's discriminatory policies. July 21, 1946, saw a protest where a young group of activists were harassed by the police force and then roughly evicted from the park when they tried to enter the dance hall. The activists subsequently filed lawsuits against the park and began picketing. A month later, on August 23, 1946, 12 activists again visited the park to nonviolently protest by playing skee-ball in an integrated group. Park police did not allow the activists to attempt roller skating or dancing and roughly evicted them from the park. The summer of activism at Euclid Beach Park was not quite over, however. The dance pavilion was the most carefully guarded, read, discriminatory, space at the park. One day later that summer, two off-duty black police officers escorted two couples to the pavilion, one white and one black. When the black couple were prevented from entering by park guards, the police officers attempted to arrest the guards for violating state civil rights laws. A brawl resulted, and in the resulting brawl, a gun accidentally misfired, with an officer badly injured as a result. Subsequently, the mayor shut down the dance hall a week earlier than the season closure. Activists pushed in city council meetings for a change to public accommodation laws in order to include anti-discrimination language. After months of debate, the mayor publicly expressed his unease, but did sign this law. Unfortunately, the mayor's unease paved the way out for Euclid Beach Park, or so it said. 
1947 season opened with the dance hall, the skating rink, and the bathhouse closed. They would later reopen under private management as quote-unquote private clubs, no longer part of the park and therefore circumventing the public licensing laws. And as I said earlier, the thing is, Euclid Beach Park just wasn't alone. This same attitude and philosophy was demonstrated in the course of numerous theme parks around the country. Nonviolent protesting worked, though, as the 1949 Freeman Civil Rights Act in New Jersey proved. Laws surrounding all commercial amusements from this area were rewritten following increased public support for desegregation after highly visible nonviolent protests at places like Palisades Park. And this, in fact, was the first civil rights statute for public accommodations since 1931. Public actions by Corps forced Palisades Park to officially desegregate by 1952, although discriminatory policies were reportedly upheld there throughout the 1960s. So as I said, while officially Euclid Beach Park was required to comply with public anti-discrimination laws after the 1947 season, they instead opened up private clubs for the bathhouse, the dance hall, and the skating rink. And that's how their discriminatory policies continued, because it was a private business now. They couldn't do anything about it. The park ultimately closed 22 years later in 1969. And discrimination persisted for the rest of Euclid Beach Park's operation, despite that nominal desegregation. Chroniclers of the park's history cite, quote-unquote, racial tensions and, and, quote, gangs and undesirables, end quote, that were attracted to the park because of the open gate policies, thereby, quote, scaring off the patrons with money to spend, end quote. Other descriptions of the park from different sources, however, tell a different story, where facilities were continually being closed to black people in the years prior to the park's 1969 closure. A native Clevelander wrote of the park's closure, saying that society, quote, treats the park's financial failure in 1969 as an unfathomable mystery. It's no secret in this town that it was due in large measure to racial bigotry, end quote. Taxes continued to increase on the park's land because it was located in an urban area, and this made the land itself more profitable than the business. And at the same time, profits from the park itself began to decrease. A familiar theme park story, now with a little bit more context. 1963 saw the city cutting public transportation, with bus routes no longer running to Euclid Beach Park. And if you remember, at the beginning, one of the draws of the park was that public transportation, the trolley, or the tram, ran to the park at the time. As a result, in 1964, the park began to operate in the red, losing money. Reportedly, management began to abandon the park little by little, which is apparently a common practice for small urban parks in this time period. One author writes, quote, The vacant, darkened spaces on the countenance of Euclid Beach Park were like teeth, absent from an aging face. End quote. Rides were shuttered and sold off. Exhibits were closed. Other rides were simply demolished, like the Aerodips coaster, which was simply destroyed in 1964 or 1965. The guests who could, largely the middle-class white patrons, 
went in increasing numbers to Cedar Point, which was an hour west, or the Gialga Lake Park, which was 40 minutes south. Mass suburbanization meant that both places were increasingly accessible from the highway, by car. Cedar Point, indeed, implemented a massive improvements campaign beginning in 1959, billing itself as the Disneyland of the Midwest, with single-price admission instituted on certain days beginning in 1964. This policy kept out the lower-class patrons, who visited with their own picnics primarily to gather and people-watch, and otherwise spent very little money, riding very few rides. Reality or perception, the idea that urban parks were quote-unquote dangerous and suburban or remote parks were safer, was an idea rooted in racism, and this ultimately spelled the downfall for many central urban theme parks. In 1969, Euclid Beach Park was an unprofitable shadow of herself, and closed. I originally chose to research Euclid Beach Park because I was fascinated by its rides, A large bulk of the Euclid Beach Park rides moved to the Humphrey family's second take on Euclid Beach, which was called Shady Lakes Park, down in Streetsboro, Ohio. This short-lived park operated for only a few years, from 1978 to 1982. After Shady Lake Park, the same bulk of rides were sold to the Old Indiana Fun Park down in Thorntown, Indiana. The rides operated there for another couple of decades until 1996, when two guests were killed after the miniature train derailed. The park quickly shuttered and the rides were liquidated, and additionally this incident forced changes in the state's safety and inspection laws for amusement park rides. From here, the former rides of Euclid Beach Park were quite dispersed. The giant Ferris wheel is notable for heading to Gialga Lake, where it had to be completely rebuilt. And indeed, most of the rides were said to be in quite poor shape at this time. Still operational today are the turnpike cars, which today operate at Idlewild Park. Now, these are actually a fun story and an interesting read that I'll link to you in the show notes. These are notable for being the same limited-run model of car as Disneyland's first Autopia. And there's an excellent Yesterland article that I will link to you about the history of this particular ride. As part of the move to try and regain some of the profits from Euclid Beach Park, they sold the Great American Racing Derby ride in 1967 to competitor Cedar Point. And that ride still operates today, but it's called the Cedar Downs. As far as the physical remnants of the theme parks, after the closure of Old Indiana, Six Flags' parent company Premier Parks purchased the property, storing several dismantled coasters on-site as late as 2006. No new theme park ever operated there, and today the land is a hops farm. Shady Lake Park had an entrance modeled after Euclid Beach Parks, and that remained there until 2004. Today, the area is apartments and a bank. And Euclid Beach Park? The famous arched gateway was made a Cleveland landmark, and it still stands today. Apartment buildings occupy much of the former amusement park site. The remainder is public land, including the Euclid Beach Park Pier, which was recently rebuilt and rededicated. You can still purchase Humphrey Family Popcorn, even to this very day. And, of course, that beautiful PTC carousel, 
When Euclid Beach Park closed, the carousel went to Palace Playland in Maine, where it operated for several decades until 1996. Subsequently, the Trust for Public Land repurchased the carousel at $715,000. A quote regarding the matter said, quote, They don't normally bid on carousels, but they realized how important it was to Cleveland history. End quote. By 2014, Philadelphia Toboggan Company Carousel Number no. 19 was fully restored, and it reopened to the public under the operation of the Western Reserve Historical Society, where you can still ride it today. Although I focused on the story of Euclid Beach Park here, it's important to remember that they were in no way unique or out of step with other theme parks at the time. While Euclid Beach Park of the past made their own decisions, similar stories can be told about theme parks in both the North and the South. Quote, We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. End quote. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail, speaking of racial injustice. As he wrote, he spoke of his daughter, quote, When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, End quote. He wrote, quote, Then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. End quote. This is a podcast about theme park history and theme park nostalgia. We also need to acknowledge the implicit perspectives we bring to the table. Some people might bring nostalgia for glimmering childhood experiences and joys long gone. And other people might remember sad longing for something that was close to them for too long. The memories of theme parks are as segregated as those parks once were. Thanks for listening to this week's more serious episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I talked with you about Euclid Beach Park and the history of discrimination at urban theme parks. Much of this episode relies on the book Race, Riots, and Roller Coasters by Victoria Wolcott. You can read the entire book for free through Project Muse at Johns Hopkins University. And you can find the link to that along with links to all of my research in my show notes at my website, theabandonedcarousel.com. As always, my theme music comes from Aerobatics in Slow Motion by Technoax. I hope you are all taking COVID-19 precautions and wearing a mask if you choose to go out. A mask is not political. It is a common sense piece of science that shows respect for people around you. Wear a mask, stay at home when you can, and stay safe. I'll be back with another episode of The Abandoned Carousel as soon as time allows. In the meantime, stay safe. Remember what Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.